Exploremore presents a reading from Strangers Like Angels with a devil or two to boot by Alec and Jan Foreman. Chapter 16, Extreme Challenge, 31st of May to the 10th of June, 1977, Niger, Algeria. We eventually arrived in the desert town of Agadez after three gruelling days of driving over 600 miles from Niemi, with the daily temperature rising. The road conditions were variable, from good, well-graded dirt roads to deeply rutted sand tracks in which at one point the Land Rover became trapped until a passing local truck stopped and a dozen men jumped off and pushed us free. Other dirt roads were seriously corrugated and the jolting Land Rover threw us up from our seats as the safety belts jarred into our bodies trying to hold us still. Alec fought to control the jerking steering wheel, pulling this way and that as the wheels skimmed the hard ridges. If you maintained a speed of 40 miles per hour, you'd have a relatively smooth ride until you crossed an irrigation gully cut across the track. Hitting a gully at speed sent the vehicle into the air and it landed with such force that the heavy Land Rover rammed rigid into the ground. It threw us towards the windscreen and then we were thumped back down hard onto our seats. Clouds of red dust enveloped us from the increase of passing traffic, so by the time we arrived at the Agadez campsite we looked like clowns, with reddened hair and faces, had camel thirst and were ready for a cold beer. The pleasant campsite was situated seven miles out of town and boasted clean squat toilets and rigged up perforated bucket showers. It had a simple restaurant in secluded gardens with shady trees and a swimming pool full of fluorescent green water. Busy days at the campsite as we prepared for the second crossing of the Sahara. The advisory put out by the Automobile Association read that it was extremely unwise to travel in the desert between May and October due to the heat and difficulties arising in the event of a breakdown. From June onwards, the southern Sahara was subject to violent rains and the roads could become impassable. Well, We'd made our decision and were committed to make the crossing at that time. On Sunday, the 5th of June, we left the campsite at half past five. Our thermometer read 89 degrees Fahrenheit. Taking on my role of desert navigator again, I had the compass, diary and pen on hand to record time, mileage and notable features as we set off to drive the 1,000 miles north across the Sahara. Travelling unaccompanied, we knew this would be a risky drive, pushing ourselves to the limit each day. We registered our intended route at the Agadez police station and were soon out of town. Initially, Alec drove the Land Rover across the parched floodland that supported a few scattered trees. In leaving early, we hoped to take advantage of the sand being firm from the coolness of the night. After driving 29 miles in the first hour, we arrived at Teguidum Adra, a village of 20 huts, a small flock of goats gathered by a well to drink the water drawn by their shepherd boy. He waved to us as we passed by. Although it was a hot day, the air was pleasant on our faces as it breezed through the open windows. Dust kicked up 
into the back of the Land Rover owing to the poorly sealed door following the ditch incident. As we drove across the flat gravel and sand plateau, I saw an unusual small plot of fenced farmland that I noted down in the diary, along with the compass bearing as a reference point en route. We took a break after 77 miles at the small mud desert town of Teguida and Tesum. There were many fine-looking Tuaregs who rode proudly on their camels through the streets. They sat on decorative, leather-covered, wood-framed saddles that fit snugly over the camel's hump. Naked children with Mohican haircuts came and asked us for pens. We topped up our water supply, including filling the new goatskin I had purchased the day before in Agadez Market. It had been thoroughly treated and prepared to carry water, unlike our first purchase. The headless, swollen, hairy skin with trussed-up lakes was stretched out on the side of our Land Rover, tied with coarse rope to both ends of the jerry can rack. We continued on for 20 miles across a wide expanse of undulating sandy plains as far as the eye could see. The ground was sparsely covered with pale yellow grass and scattered thorn trees that offered little shade. The temperature had reached 100 degrees Fahrenheit and the sun glared relentlessly. A totally remote location, yet we came across a tent which was the home for an isolated Bedouin family a mother, two children and a disabled father with a club foot. Two camels and a couple of goats grazed nearby. The sound of our approaching Land Rover grabbed their attention and they hailed us to stop. The mother held a two-quart tin by its handle high in the air. They needed water, so we stopped and shared our limited supply. Not until 50 minutes and 15 miles later did we actually see anyone else. A small camel train with a Tuareg on the lead camel was way off to the east and three horses grazed not far from the well-defined track. When the track was obvious, metal stakes or 45-gallon metal drums marked it well. But when there was a myriad of tracks going all over the place, there was not a marker in sight. At Imbangarit waterhole, there were hundreds of camels gathered with their masters, hot, steamy camel dung, littered the ground and the fresh odour greeted us. A teenager willingly filled up our plastic jerry can with water. We had left the driver and passenger doors of the Land Rover wide open as we walked about to stretch our legs and loosen our muscles. On our return, we found our tin of sweets had been nicked. Well, if that was all we had stolen from us on the trip, we would be very fortunate indeed. On the next part of the journey, the track took us across the sand dunes. The Land Rover had averaged 27 miles per hour since we broke camp seven hours before. By midday, the temperature had reached 112 degrees Fahrenheit, so we stopped for lunch and a siesta until four, by which time the temperature had risen even further to 116 degrees Fahrenheit. We left the sand dunes behind us as we continued northwards across the desolate, inhospitable, hot gravel plateau where no vegetation grew at all. After 45 miles driving in the wilderness, we came across three children who beckoned us for water. They were dressed in matching woven cotton tunics. The two boys both had a Mohican hairstyle and each wore a leather talisman around his neck. The third child was a young girl whose hair was neatly plaited. 
There was no sign of any adults, nomadic dwellings or animals in the vicinity. The children did not appear particularly distressed, but of course we gave them a drink and a few polo mints too. We took a couple of photographs to prove the story to ourselves in the future. It was unnatural for us to, to drive on and leave them there. But our travels in the desert has shown us that all is not what it appears to be. How often we had stopped far away from anybody, only to find someone mysteriously show up out of nowhere. By six in the evening, we arrived at Asamaka, on the Niger frontier, marked by a solitary mud hut office. We had done well to find it in the middle of the desert. A short wheelbase Land Rover driven by Italians arrived under military escort. Maybe they had unknowingly driven by the border control. After the formalities were complete, we took the opportunity to top up with water, but later found it to be contaminated with sewerage. Oh, I had a restless night worrying about the foul water, even though our water filter could purify it to a pristinely clear and safe fluid to drink. Fortunately, we had not added any bad water to the goat skin. On day two of the Sahara crossing, we were up and away from Asamaka by half past five. Alec initially followed the poorly defined tracks very carefully as we traversed the barren desert in the half light. I noticed an outcrop of rocky hills to the west and noted it down. Later, there were deep sandy ruts and the Land Rover got stuck solid on the high central ridge. Alex shoveled the sand away from beneath the chassis and freed the vehicle. His grubby shirt clung to his sweaty back as he climbed back in and we drove on. One hour later, we arrived at the isolated mud village of Ingazam, where the Algerian border officials were stationed. We waited for an hour and a half before the customs and police offices opened. They roughly searched our vehicle, making us feel nervous. Finally, we were given permission to go and we both breathed a sigh of relief as we left. The hard corrugated sand tracks wound between low rocky hills to the east and west. We passed several stripped abandoned vehicles, a visual reminder of the vulnerable and dangerous position we had placed ourselves in, driving across such hostile, unforgiving territory. The track was now running through wide open sandy plains with patches of pale green grass and striking purple rocks. At ten in the morning I checked our direction with the compass. We were headed 322 degrees north, having driven 73 miles so far that day and the temperature was 108 degrees Fahrenheit. The terrain changed to rolling grey gravel plains with distant hills. The rippled road gave such a bone shaker of a ride that Alec drove off the main track to seek relief. Bad mistake. The Land Rover plunged into deep soft sand. It took 30 minutes to release the vehicle. Alec first digging, then driving, as I pushed the back of the vehicle and retrieved and repositioned the sand ladders to repeat the whole procedure, all beneath the fierce blinding sun. By one o'clock we had driven a further 50 miles and we're glad to stop for lunch and a long nap. Later in the afternoon, we continued on along a significantly improved track. Several trucks and jeeps passed us by as they travelled southwards. One truck had broken down, and the driver and passengers requested that we stop. Alec lent them a hacksaw blade to repair a puncture. 
It was used to roughen the surface of the inner tube in preparation for smearing on the glue to adhere the repair patch. We gave them a gallon of water and they gave us each a glass of sugar-saturated mint tea and fresh dates. The good track was short-lived as we bounced across severe corrugations once again, going alongside gravelly rolling sands with bordering hills. By seven we took refuge from the exhausting expedition and parked the Land Rover beside a huge rock not far off the track. We washed our hands and faces in the cold blackened water poured from the goatskin. It was a cool moonlit night, so after supper we rested for a while outside. We lay flat on our backs on sleeping bags, spread on the hard sand, and looked up to the star-studded heavens. A tranquil moment of bliss as we relaxed in the quietness and solitude of the desert. The next morning it took two hours to drive the remaining 50 miles to Tamanrasset, our midway staging post. Arriving by 8, the temperature was pleasant at 86 degrees Fahrenheit. We reported to the customs and police stations and our travel documents were perused and stamped. As part of a malaria control programme, they also took our temperatures, which thankfully were normal. We booked in at the familiar campsite at a cost of £2 a night. That hurt after all the free nights, choosing a location wherever we fancied along the trail. Alex set to repairing the rear left spring, which had broken another leaf during the desert crossing. He also patched two of our plastic water jerry cans that had been leaking. I attended to the laundry and sterilised the sewerage-contaminated water tanks. We were grateful to be in one location for a while. It was fascinating to observe who would choose to come on such a safari adventure. There on the campsite was the rugged macho guy, whom we'd nicknamed the knight in his shining white Land Rover. Perched on the bonnet of his vehicle was his glamorous blonde girlfriend, looking every bit a model as she manicured and painted her long nails pillarbox red. We had previously met them on our journey south at the Agadez campsite. They were well known for rescuing stranded overlanders whose vehicles had broken down in the desert. At one stage of our journey southwards, we came across a Volkswagen campervan parked in the desert. There beneath the shade of a martini umbrella was a bikini-clad young woman lounging on her sunbed. She wore sunglasses to tone down the glare from the glossy magazine she was reading. No one else appeared to be around, so we stopped to see what was going on. Oh, my boyfriend got a ride on a truck. He's gone off to Agadez to buy spare parts to fix our van, she casually responded, as if it was the most natural thing in the world to be sunbathing in the Sahara. We checked to make sure she had enough water and food before we continued on, hoping that her boyfriend would return as planned. During the evening in Tamanrasset, we chatted with another English couple. Their travel costs had been funded by compensation that the chap had received after a work injury left him lame. On hearing their travel tales, we were thankful that we had made the decision to turn west from Yaoundi in Cameroon and not continue driving east through Zaire towards Kenya. Apparently they had been held up and seriously threatened by drunken Zairean soldiers waving loaded machine guns. Customs officers had aggressively searched their vehicle 
and the ferryman charged them an extortionate fee to take them and their vehicle across the river. Their disturbing experience had totally put them off Africa and they couldn't wait to put their feet back on European terra firma. Too bad. The following day we had a restful lie-in until eight, then got up to enjoy fresh baguette, jam and coffee served by the campsite staff while we sat on bamboo chairs beneath a palm-frond gazebo. Afterwards, Alec popped into town to organise the third-party vehicle insurance for Algeria, changed money at the bank, bought bread from the bakery and collected letters at the post office. We had a late lunch, then packed and left town by five, having refilled the water and petrol tanks, of course. The air was thick with dust, the wind was blowing and, remarkably, it was gently raining. Thirty-five miles north of the town, we drove along a corrugated track across rocky, hilly terrain. An Algerian soldier waved us down and asked us for cigarettes, cassettes, souvenirs or whatever we should care to give him. As we had nothing we wished to part with, Alec drove away in haste. Further along, there was a group of soldiers working on a new road that would go from Tamanrasset to Insala. A short while later, we passed by several army camps. Just after eight, having continued for a further 65 miles, distancing ourselves from the army, we decided to stop as night was falling. We were perturbed when two soldiers appeared and gave us some plums. They stood around for ages watching us, obviously expecting something in return. Thankfully, they eventually gave up and left. That night, we slept with our doors and windows securely locked in case our unwelcome visitors returned. On day five of the Sahara crossing, at five in the morning, it was still dark as we ate our breakfast. The rumble of several army trucks driving by shattered the peace. They carried the early shift of soldiers to the construction site to toil on the new road in the corners of the dawn. It was a lovely drive across sandy terrain that morning with scenic, rugged, rocky hills in the distance. Later on, the track became rough and ridged with well-defined corrugations, which ironically had become a totally normal surface for us to rattle along. Alec observed that the engine ran much cooler that day, compared to the same hour on previous days. By half past nine, we'd driven 84 miles and arrived at the familiar small sacred white building, Marabou of Muley Hassan. We drove around it three times again, for good luck. The climate was very pleasant at 90 degrees Fahrenheit by noon, so we kept on going. The route varied from a newly cut track, level and comfortable to drive along, to one that deteriorated into corrugations and then to soft sand. When our Land Rover wheels became firmly engulfed in the deep sand, we were so thankful that the Italians, whom we'd seen at the Niger frontier, happened to come on by. Following the Samaritan Code of Desert Travellers, they rescued us by winching the Land Rover out onto firmer ground. Having enjoyed a cooler day, we were surprised by mid-afternoon when the temperature shot up to 120 degrees Fahrenheit as we arrived at Arak Gorge. There we stopped, ate lunch and took a two and a half hour break. At five we set off again, following an easily identifiable corrugated track that ran along the foot of towering cliffs. He took us through beautiful, rugged mountain scenery that was quite different to the sandy route we'd driven along on our journey south. 
Three and a half hours and forty miles later, we parked for the night by the side of the track. The sixth and final day of traversing the Sahara seemed short and sweet. We set off at seven in the morning to find the tarmac road and anticipated a heavenly respite from the constant rough ride. After leaving the hills, the track cut through a plateau of firm white sand. Steadily clocking up the miles, we drew closer and closer to our target. In less than four hours, we located the tarmac road and were ecstatic. Our trusty lander had taken us for the second time safely across the Sahara. Fears of breaking down and being trapped in the unmerciful, desolate desert vanished. We felt tremendous relief and great achievement as we drove the final 60 miles to Insela. Magnificent golden sand dunes fanned out on either side of the tarmac road in celebration of the victory won on that day over the mighty Sahara. By noon, we were at a cafe shack in the town, drinking cold sodas. Our thirst quenched, we discussed the ongoing journey. In the coming days, we would continue through Algeria to Tunisia and to the edge of the African continent. We were both looking forward to reaching and crossing the Mediterranean Sea to Sicily and beyond. It had been an exhilarating experience exploring West Africa, but we were more than ready for a little European luxury. Total distance driven, 15,777 miles. You've been listening to a reading from Strangers Like Angels with a Devil or Two to Boot by Alec and Jan Foreman, presented by Explore More. Explore More is an adventure lifestyle brand founded on the 1977 travel stories of Alec and Jan Foreman with a passion to inspire people to explore more of the world, engage with others and embrace global cultures to ensure a greater understanding for each other and enable positive progression. Discover great products and more on exploremore.com. That's E-X-P-L-M-O-R-E dot com.